Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. Barry and I were just chatting about how we're not even sure what day it is anymore. Not even sure how far we are into lockdown, Barry. The days are just flying by. It feels like a one big blur, Chad. Like, I don't know if it's a Monday or a Thursday. I don't know if it's the morning or the afternoon. It's all very, very confusing. And sometimes when I look at my calendar or my watch, I, I lose my mind because I'm like, how is it Thursday already? <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. Uh, you're certainly not alone. Anyway, welcome back. You're with Across the Pond. So we're, as we said, going through our lockdown situation, wherever you are in the world, as far as I can see, about half of the world's population is now in some sort of lockdown, which is certainly interesting. Barry, you said yesterday you started to, for the first time, actually get a little bit bored. Yeah, I've had some good days and some bad days. Some days I feel like I'm doing lots of productive things. Some days I'm very happy sitting on the couch and watching TV. <laughs> yeah. But yesterday, for some reason, I had like a four or five hour period where I was like, what am I doing? I'm so bored. Yeah. So it's one of those things I think it comes and goes. And I think we have to be kind on ourselves and not think we have to be productive all of the time because obviously these are unprecedented times right chat absolutely yeah no doubt about that well let's get into our episode the week that was so we're going to just dig through some of the things that happened this past week. I suppose in our last couple of episodes, it's not going to be as heavy in terms of the updates around the world, but certainly let's talk about a couple of interesting things. So one of the topics we've been monitoring over time is South African Airways and what's been unfolding there. Obviously, they were into the business rescue process, looking for some money from government. And Barry, you've now got an update for us. Yeah, so the business rescue practitioners have been combing through the books and trying to figure out a way to keep this business alive. And after all of their reporting, after all of their work, work, they kind of announced that they needed an extra 10 billion rand to continue with the business rescue. So this is not even to save the company, but just to continue with operations, continue the rescue process, yep. right? So we've seen them get lots and lots of money in the past, and they've spent all that money trying to keep the business alive. And so the government looked at this 10 billion rand request and has declined it. And so Chad, it looks likely now that the company is not going to be able to survive because without that 10 billion rand, the business rescue guys are saying this thing isn't going to fly. Interesting. Well, it's really just a matter of time before we know what the fate of the airline was. Obviously, the government's really under pressure now to try and keep the economy going. And I suppose to throw it into an airline like that just wouldn't make sense at this point. Yeah, the funds just aren't there, right? And they need to be used in other areas. And so I think it's come to the point of this is the last straw for this company. I don't see a way for them to survive this. Over the past 14 years, Chad, the company has an estimated cumulative loss of 28 billion rand. Wow. So it's been coming for a long time and this company has been losing money year after year after year. So I think the government has kept it up and kept it afloat as long as possible. But it's got to that point right now in the middle of a pandemic is not the kind of time yeah. you want to be asking government for money, right? Definitely. It's very, very bad timing for that. As a result, the company is trying to figure out what is the way forward, right? And so they've been circulating some draft termination agreements. They are looking to retrench 4,700 employees by the end of the month, which is obviously a huge number yep. and a significant kind of hits for the economy and for just the airline industry in general. Definitely. And so they're currently in negotiation with the various trade unions around that retrenchment agreement. As always, these things take time to back and forth and they try and find some sort of compromise. So at present, as of this morning, NUMSA and the SA Cabinet and Career Association have both rejected the mass retrenchment proposal. Yep. And the reason they're saying is that they haven't received the answers to their various questions that they wanted. One of the guys had a very snarky comment, said they've just heard excuses, they haven't heard answers. <laughs> so they're waiting to hear from SAA regarding that and from the business rescue guys regarding what can be done. Some people still believe the SAA can be saved. So there's still murmurs of, should we not be trying to save this thing and save all these jobs? But economically, I just don't see how that happens. And I think we get into that point where unfortunately this negotiation might be mute because there might be no cash left anyway. Indeed. I mean, even before the pandemic, it was a case of whether they could actually get it going. But now we're in this pandemic. It's just a certain one that they can't actually, you know, get the business activity going. The interesting thing for me is, is in terms of those proposals, like you mentioned, they obviously want some answers, but obviously we've got the natural back and forth in terms of negotiations and all of that kind of stuff. Now, from what I've seen, there's a sort of decent retrenchment payout there. They're paying sort of all accrued leave. They're paying for, you know, 
all of those kinds of things, it seems very reasonable at the stage for a company that's on its absolute last legs. But yeah, obviously the unions want their best for the members as well. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. I think that those proposed payouts are reasonable and what they've kind of laid out in their retrenchment package seems to be fair in my opinion. And so I don't think we'll see much movement on that. I think that as trade unions go, you have to show that you are trying to negotiate and trying to do your best on behalf of your members. And so I think it's a bit cosmetic at this point. Um, I don't see a way that they're going to increase the amount of money they're going to get because obviously there's still huge amounts of creditors who need to be paid as well. And so the employees are going to get first dibs of this money, but there's going to be lots of pressure on SAA from all the various creditors and suppliers around the world who are still owed money. Um, And they're going to try and figure out where they fall in that pile, right? Or in that like picking order. And so I think this is going to be kind of a moot point at the end of the day, like we said. I think SAA is, has tried as much as it can to stay alive, but it simply can't survive, especially in this kind of climate. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, they're doing probably a few flights a week doing repatriation flights elsewhere in the world. But other than that, I think they're completely dead. And so I think this is the end. And personally, while it's sad for South Africa because it's one of the oldest airlines in the world and really has a lot of like heritage yeah. in it, I think it's maybe a step in the right direction so we can stop sending good money off to bad and we can use those resources more effectively and maybe once this pandemic is over we can rethink about an airline going forward and maybe something leaner maybe something a different kind of format or different structure um, that might be able to take SAA or whatever it's going to become forward from this absolutely and in terms of those proposals in terms of the retrenchment payouts and leave pay and all that kind of stuff from what I can see there they will still need to liquidate some of their assets to actually make that possible now my question is in this market where are those buyers that's the thing right so that's why the 10 billion rand is just not feasible because that could turn into 60 billion rand depending on how many assets they can liquidate right and so at at this point no one quite knows what the cash flow situation is because this is unprecedented times and whatever you have on your balance sheet might not reflect reality because you might be sitting with all the stuff on your balance sheet you think you can get that amount of money for it but uh, in the the actual market you might have to do some sort of fire sale and so that's why it's so uncertain right now and we'll have to wait and see as to what they can liquidate and how much cash they can release so that they can pay these employees and then pay their creditors on a sliding scale. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to monitor that over time and uh, hopefully all of those jobs get the biggest cushion they can possibly in terms of a form of some sort of payout. Moving on to the next story I actually saw on my social media that Woolworths, one of the uh, retail chains there in South Africa for groceries and that kind of stuff, is actually going drive-through. Really, really fascinating. So just in terms of the demand that they've had on the online uh, part of the business at the moment, they've really been struggling to get some available slots for people who do want to order online and so what they've come up is kind of a hybrid between online and shopping in store and that is that you can book a parking bay a designated parking bay within a certain time slot uh, go through park there and one of the staff members will come through and actually deliver your online order into your boot you would have paid before time so there's no kind of contact needed there but it certainly seems to me like a very very effective way of handling the situation Um, and they're going to be rolling this out across 15 stores. Yeah, this is, this is where innovation comes in, right? Where you have necessity, you have some sort of constraint, you have something that happens in the in the macro environment and companies have to innovate. Yeah. And so I think Woolworths has always been on the front of this in South Africa. They're very well known for changing kind of the status quo regarding retailers. And so this is another example of innovation. And Chad, I, when I look at this now, I kind of think, I want this in normal times, yeah, right? I want true. this normally. When I'm busy, I don't want to have to go and walk up or down the shop. Yeah. And so hopefully this is something that might be able to continue going forward and maybe it changes the way we think about groceries or changes the way we think about shopping. But for the moment, like you say, I think it's a good innovation. It's important for them. They can't afford to be sending deliveries to every single house around Joburg, right? Or around the country. And so this allows them a little bit more breathing space and a little bit more room for them to do things at their stores where they have the people and they have the resources. I'm curious as to any of our listeners, if you've tried this, please let us know and let us know how it went. Like, did it work like it was advertised? Was it convenient? Did you have to wait for long, etc.? Let us know how it goes uh, because I'd I'd be curious as to how this actually works in real life. Yeah, as well, definitely. I mean, if you get to the stage where you have to sit in your car for half an hour before someone comes through, um, you know, that clearly is going to be a (laughs) difficult one to manage. It's really just going to be interesting to see how they, you know, manage the, uh, is it by number plate? Um, You know, how's this all going to work? So if you do try it out, like Barry said, do let us know because, 
we'd be keen to hear about it. The next one was just in terms of the South African lockdown, obviously being a few notches higher than elsewhere in the world, where you guys cannot purchase <laughs> alcohol. So if you had alcohol before the lockdown, all good. But, you know, just in terms of purchasing more alcohol, you can't. And from what I've seen, there's been uh, quite a bit of looting of, you know, alcohol stores, quite a bit of pressure from the public, really, on government um, to try and lift this part of the restriction. What can you tell us about it, Barry? Yeah, so this is a story that really interests me um, because I think most of you will know I don't drink myself. <laughs> and so you have to take my comments with some bias, right? Yeah. Because I have different views on alcohol, but it has been a very contentious issue here in South Africa and quite frankly, the rest of the world. Yeah. I've seen a few news articles talking about there's only four or five countries across the whole world that have done this sort of alcohol ban, okay. right? And South Africa is one of them. Um, and so it is quite a unique thing for them to have done. And uh, when we talk about it, like South Africa is a big alcohol country. Like we all know that. Like there's a lot of alcohol that gets drunk and it's a big part of the culture here, right? Yep. And so to take away all this alcohol immediately really did like set some people on edge. And so yep. there have been some lootings. Luckily, they've been kind of isolated so far. Okay. There's only been a couple. And so it hasn't been like a mass thing yet. But definitely it's something that everyone is talking about. And uh, Chad, I'm sure you know this, but alcohol is still being sold. It's just sold in the black market now <laughs> sure. at crazy prices. Right. So I've seen people with warehouses that they had stocked up before the lockdown and they are now making an absolute killing selling it under the table to Gosh. people so it definitely is still being sold right but on a mass market level there are a lot of people who can't get their hands on it right and if we think about some of the reasons that this might be in place i pulled out three relevant reasons that i think are why south africa have done what they, they've done so maybe we can chat through them all yeah. the first one when we look at the, the trauma and ER rooms in South Africa, so those those hospital rooms that are dealing with emergency medical situations, the vast majority of those come because of alcohol-related injuries, right? So alcohol-related violence, alcohol-related stupidity, yep. um, whatever it is, there's people who, if you go into those trauma rooms, say in Barragoranth Hospital or whatever on a Friday night, they are absolutely packed with hundreds and hundreds of people who are there because of alcohol-related injuries. So by taking alcohol out of the equation, most ER rooms around the country and trauma rooms are completely empty. Yeah. And that what that does theoretically is it allows more space for corona patients and doesn't make those resources be spent in a different way to what they should be spent, right? Yeah. So I think that's the first reason, Chad. And I actually got an email from the one ER room that I went to when I broke my thumb this morning talking about how they are empty and they still have doctors and reminding okay. you that they still are functioning and whatnot. And so I think it's a weird situation where we expected our hospitals to be overrun, but yeah. for some reason our numbers are still quite low and so we haven't seen that yet. And so all these trauma and ER rooms are standing empty, Chad. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, when I look at the figures in terms of South Africa and fatalities and that kind of stuff, that does map out because um, it does certainly seem like you guys containing it very well and and those reasons do make sense it almost feels like we're back in the 1920s where like you said there's now a, a black market going <laughs> um you know to actually for people to get their yeah. alcohol but yeah i mean really is an interesting one i suppose a, an effective way to, to manage the the capacity what are the other reasons yeah so the second one is another south african specific reason so in south africa we have a large amount of gender-based violence and domestic violence in our society unfortunately and a large portion of that is also due to alcohol so some of the reasoning goes that if people don't have the kind of alcohol they used to have, maybe some of the abusers and some of the people who are hurting each other won't be able to do that or, or won't feel the need to do that. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that for families who are now forced to self-isolate, they're forced to kind of come together and be in one room at, at all times, maybe there is less domestic violence because of this. I think we take it for granted, Chad, that we can isolate people that are really kind and caring and, and really want to be with us, right? There's a lot of families around the world, and especially in South Africa, where families are forced to come together and they actually don't get along and there's abuse and there's all sorts yeah. of violence in that family. And by taking alcohol out of that equation, the idea is that hopefully we reduce some of that violence happening. Yeah, that again makes sense. Um, you know, we all know that sometimes alcohol, depending on how it affects each different person, it can kind of amplify certain types of emotions. Um, and so, you know, you get people who do go on the one side of the scale and get really happy and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And then you do get the aggressives. Um, and so, you know, that does make sense. Any any sort of reduction in those kinds of cases, um, especially when a lockdown is going on for a long period of time, even if that domestic violence, you know, traditionally wouldn't have gone into hospital, um, even just kind of, you know, making that lockdown actually work and make, make people want to stay indoors with their families, that certainly does sound like it could be effective. What's the next one? Yeah, so the last one is a pure medical 
medical reason. And it's talking about the fact that alcohol weakens our immune system, right? right? And so by a weakened immune system, you are more susceptible to the virus itself. So this is a purely practical one that we're all trying to be as healthy and as, as clean as possible to ensure that our body is as strong as possible to fight off the virus if we get it, right? And so by taking that out of the equation, again, we hopefully increase the immune system across our population and give us a better chance of fighting this disease. Yeah. And so now, Chad, I'm well aware that I sound puritanical in this <laughs> and that because I don't drink alcohol, it's easy for me to say these things. Um, a lot of people think that this is too much and maybe a little bit of alcohol might enable isolation to be more manageable and maybe be able to be deal with in a certain way. Sure. But I'm hoping that this is a real opportunity for South Africa to look at their alcohol dependence, to look at why they use alcohol in their lives and think about the long-term effects of continued alcohol use to try and cover over potential insecurities yep. or problems or issues or like dealing with difficult things, right? So I'm, I'm all for having a beer or whatever with your mates and having fun and all that good stuff, but it's about when alcohol becomes a crutch for dealing with your day-to-day -day life. And so I'm curious to see what's going to happen after this lockdown ends as to whether our culture does change, even on a small scale, yep. about how we think think about alcohol because we've proven to ourselves we can go 35 days without it yeah it's a, it's a one of those big natural experiments we're getting quite a lot of these experiments during this time which is really interesting to see and you're right um, i think if this even just lets people kind of assess their habits at the moment um, and you know if they decide to sort of stay the way they are that's all good um, but even if it kind of you know opens up just that extra option you know that's certainly a productive thing to have now in terms of the three or four countries that have picked it my natural question with those three Three reasons which are very very strong arguments is why others have not now like you said you know south africa has got a big drinking culture the uk does too and so for me that argument of people saying well you know it's too big of a culture in the uk for them to implement it um, just doesn't hold where you know in south africa the same thing is the case what do you think barry yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think that it's it's one of those things that are very contentious as a decision. Like when you think about a lockdown, that's one of the things that are probably the most controversial. Yep. And I don't know why we're the only ones to have done it. I, I think it's a great idea and I think it works personally. I think it's done really, really well. I've spoken to a few of my doctor friends who are saying that in those emergency rooms, it's creepy how empty they are. Yep. And obviously it's because people aren't going and getting car accidents sure. and all that good stuff as well. It's not just the alcohol, but it certainly is a, is a big factor. And so I don't know why... People People elsewhere haven't done it. I know in the US they've been talking about it for a little bit, but there's okay. too many Americans who refuse to have their freedom kind of taken yep. away in that instance. I mean, you see them protesting all sorts of things that side, and so yep. alcohol would definitely be one of those things. But the UK, for example, I don't know. The only other countries that have done it have been India and Malaysia and South Africa and Botswana. I think those are the four countries. And in Malaysia and India, like the drinking culture is very, very little because it's all mostly like religious based. They don't drink, right? right. And Botswana is a very, very small country. So it's strange that South Africa is kind of the only one with a drinking culture that's relatively significant yeah. population-wise that's done this. And so who knows why, Chad? An interesting move. Well, we'll have to certainly see how that develops throughout these remaining lockdowns. And even if other countries impose limits, not a complete ban, that could also be an interesting thing to see. Now, yesterday I was on Twitter, uh, one of the very infrequent times that I do find myself scrolling through the platform, <laughs> and I managed to see that hashtag Boris Resign was trending on the UK Twitter. And uh, this is because of the realization of the public that he skipped five COBRA meetings on COVID-19. Now, the COBRA meeting is kind of the top executives in the government who, you know, get together for these emergencies. And so, yeah, basically what they're saying is that potentially the UK could have had an extra five weeks to actually, you know, get the response planned um, ahead of time. And he was off on honeymoon or whatever the case was. Um, and so, yeah, people really not pleased about that. I find these arguments difficult, Chad, because all of this ad hoc kind of in hindsight things yeah. also looks so easy. It's like easy to say, oh, he missed these five meetings. He, he could have gone to the first meeting and kind of saved all these lives. <laughs> But if you look around the world, there isn't one country that was prepared for this. Yep. There's not one country around the world that was on top of things, that was ahead of things, that kind of overestimated the impact this was going to have. Yep. And so I find these arguments difficult. I understand the sentiment and I understand the anger because obviously we, we want to have changed what happened in the past. 
But if this is the case and Boris has resigned because of this, then I think every world leader must resign because yeah. no one saw this coming, right? Absolutely true. And uh, I guess, you know, the question of how it was handled when it actually started getting handled is, is kind of the more important thing. Um, so, you know, he has got us into lockdown. It was done in a phased approach, which, you know, the people who care about the economy will be pleased about. There'll always be people who won't be pleased. You know, he said we could have gone into full on lockdown sooner. But yeah, it, it is that balance. And I think where we're at at the moment is, you know, we have been kind of mapping the curve of Italy, um, which is certainly concerning. But it does seem like there's some sort of stabilizing going on there now. So in terms of the daily deaths, um, at one stage, it was on sort of a thousand. It's now down to, you know, the the, the 500 to a thousand mark. So that seems to be some sort of stabilizing and, and certainly some sort of effective curve reduction, um, which I suppose was the goal of this. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that we have to look forward at this thing. We have to look forward as to how yeah. we can keep doing what we need to do. I think it's a waste of time and effort to be thinking about, oh, if only we had done this five weeks ago, if only we had done this, if only if we had done the lockdown earlier, if only we had yeah. done X, Y, and Z, right? All of those kind of counterfactuals don't matter right now because it is what it is. We're in this position as we are and we have to be thinking, all of us have to be focusing on how do we do the best things to take us forward. And uh, so that's why I find these arguments difficult and I hope that we can kind of look forward and realize that we're still in this fight. We're still trying to make a difference. We're still trying to flatten that curve. Yeah. And any arguments about what could have happened we can have in a year's time once all of this is over then we can start looking at how do we do it better next time but right now we've got other things on our minds and i think we should be looking forward absolutely couldn't agree with you more there barry moving on to the next one this is one that i saw yesterday as well and i also thought it was quite a cool one to see. I personally know quite a few couples who have been affected by this outbreak and obviously not being able to have their wedding. Um, you know, even for myself, that my wedding kind of hangs in the distance of uncertainty um, there in September in South Africa, where, you know, we're not sure at the moment what's actually going to be happening in September. Barry said last week the peak might yeah. even be in South Africa in September, which, you know, does certainly cast a material doubt of uncertainty. But in New York, um, in the States, the governor has confirmed that Couples can now tie the knot over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Zoom, Zoom, our good friend Zoom. Zoom is now becoming the thing for everything, right? Whether it's work meetings, yep. family catch-ups, pub quiz nights, <laughs> poker games, whatever it is, and now for marriages. Uh, it's interesting to see how, how it goes. And this is, again, it's the world innovating, yep. right? They realize they, they need to change the way things are done. And like you say, Chad, like luckily you've got some time to try and figure out what to do with your wedding. But for some people whose wedding was like a week after the lockdown yeah. started, um, then then what do you do, right? And so maybe Zoom is that option. I, I still think it would be a bit weird to be married <laughs> over Zoom, Chad. I, don't, I, I can't quite see myself doing it. But would you be able to get married over Zoom? I most certainly would not. Um, I would certainly opt for <laughs> waiting out a year, even two years if necessary. Because, yeah, just to have all the guests kind of tuned in and on top of, in, in front of the screen, um, I think... I think certainly what if your Wi-Fi dies, Chad? <laughs> exactly. Um, I, th I think it certainly removes from the intimacy and the, you know, just the, the occasion of the day. Um, I know a lot of people have kind of for some time used an app called Periscope, I believe, where, you know, they'll cast a camera in the distance and anyone who can't make it can sort of tune in. But that's not the default, which I think is an important point here. Um, so I agree with you there, Barry. Chad, I must tell you about a video I saw from a South African filmmaker called Dan Mace. Uh, he's, yes. a, he's a brilliant filmmaker and I love him to bits. Yeah. He and his fiance were supposed to get married over this time. And so as part of one of his videos, he, he took over his backyard yeah. and he chucked a iPad as the priest and got a friend to zoom in and be the priest. Yeah. And then he made all these cardboard cutouts of all these guests to sit in the garden and had this wedding with just him and his fiance, and then all these cardboard guests yeah. with the priests over Zoom. And so I thought that was beautiful and it was a really, really cool video. Um, but I think they're still going to have a real wedding afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that video too. I uh, highly recommend you go and check it out. He actually worked through the night to get all those cardboard cutouts done. Um, and she, ha yeah, she had yeah, no idea did. it was happening. Um, obviously, like you say, Barry, it wasn't an official wedding, but uh, still a really cool kind of parody of the time we find ourselves in. And basically, a few weeks after he released that video, we're now seeing people actually getting married that way in New York, which is certainly an interesting <laughs> um, you know, trajectory to see. Uh, one of the things that is happening through Zoom and does seem to be working, um, which I am shocked about, is that South African schools and universities are resuming today 
online. The University of Witwatersrand has actually even sent their pupils data for their phones to tune in online. This is certainly, certainly an interesting thing to see. Again, innovation is needed, right? And necessity is the mother of innovation. And so these guys have to do something for their students because their students can't afford to fall behind. And also, I've chatted I've been in the same boat. I've been very impressed by what I've seen. I mean, I, I chatted to a friend of mine the other day who is one of the teachers who's doing these lessons online. Okay. And she's like very nervous about being on camera and doing all this thing. But she's saying that her students haven't even realized there's been a lockdown because it's been like this smooth transition out of holiday, straight into wow. school again, and they're just doing it from home now. And because of this technology that's available right now a lot of these things can be done from home yep. and so this is really going to cast some doubt on why do we pay so much money to these universities yep. and these schools yep. um, when we can get the same sort of knowledge in different ways so obviously I know that online is not everything you can't get all of the value out of it there's a lot to be said about face-to-face communication sure. and empathy and those kind of things um, but for the moment this is kind of the best bet we have and it's been rather smooth so far for the for the schools and the universities who have the cash and have the resources yep. to be able to offer this sort of learning absolutely I'm, I'm really impressed as well especially because of you know how far behind South Africa has been in terms of you know data infrastructure and and actually just technology infrastructure so you know really to see that happening without a hit uh, at the moment hats off that does sound absolutely amazing let's move on to our next segment stuff i found interesting so what did i find interesting this week well actually yesterday uh, one of my friends michael francisco managed to do an insane challenge um, which he live streamed the whole thing and i was actually just kind of rounding up as many troops as i could to kind of go in and support him um, you know just while he was busy doing it so what was the challenge well basically for all intents and purposes he climbed mount everest on a bicycle. So this is a challenge that cyclists call Everesting. I didn't know anything about it. Um, and ultimately, they <laughs> what they do is they make sure that whatever route they're doing adds up in elevation to the exact elevation of Mount Everest. So that's 8,848 meters high um, on a bicycle. Obviously, he, you know, through however many kilometers you need to essentially just take that elevation up that high, which is just insane for me. It took him 11 and a half hours to get to that mark. And when he got to that mark, he still kept going up to 9,000 just for his personal achievement. And I think the amazing <laughs> thing here in this whole thing is that he's managed to to raise 27,500 rand from individuals, family and friends, which is now going to be going to gift of the givers um, to provide manual automated ventilation equipment, incubation equipment and safety equipment for medical staff and medical supplies uh, for this pandemic, which I just think is an absolutely insane awesome thing to do and i got to tune in and watch the live stream of this whole thing barry that's so super cool chad when you sent me the link i went and checked him out and he really is doing this, this incredible indoor yeah. feat right and uh, i think i think it's it's an example of these things that i've really been enjoying seeing around the world of people trying to do things that seem crazy indoors kind of in a stationary format and using that to tell a story and kind of raise money for people who need it yeah. so this was a really really cool thing i mean 11 and a half hours on a bike <laughs> i could not think of anything worse to be yeah. honest um but that's it's amazing and and that kind of elevation is, is crazy and i think that the technology behind these kind of platforms yep. which allow you to do these sorts of challenges is absolutely awesome and to be able to share that with people that i think is what makes it special yep. if you if he did this by himself kind of doing his own thing for his own like fitness that'd be great but by doing it and sharing yeah. this with everybody, inspiring people, raising money, it really is a positive, optimistic message for us and uh, something to look up to. Absolutely. Well, he was actually registered to do the full Ironman in South Africa that was supposed to take place a few weeks ago. So obviously he was at that fitness and instead of just kind of lapsing all of that months and months of training and just doing nothing, um, you know, managed to find something that takes, uh, I suppose, a similar amount of time, but obviously just one discipline. And like you, Barry, I would not have been able to spend that amount of time in the saddle <laughs> indoors. Um, nevertheless, you know, not having any scenery around you, which is certainly, certainly remarkable. And uh, yeah, well done to you, Mike. That was absolutely fantastic. Barry, you saw something very similar this week. Yeah, similar thing from my friend, from Henry. Um, so my friend Henry owns the the set of 86 public restaurants in Joburg. Okay. So if you're in Joburg, you'll know those restaurants used to own gin etc so he's, he's been in that industry for a long time and obviously he's having huge issues at the moment because the restaurant industry is completely falling apart because of this lockdown yeah. and uh, he kind of wanted to do something for his temporary staff so at the moment he's managing to pay his permanent staff a little bit so he's managing to keep them alive for, for the moment as, 
Um, he's managing to keep them alive for the moment, but his temporary staff who kind of rely on tips and rely on kind of shift work don't have any income right now. Yep. And so he figured, cool, how can I raise some money for this? And so he decided, Chad, in a similar format to Mike, was instead of doing Everest, he wanted to run the Comrades. <laughs> and so he decided he was going to run 90 kilometers in his apartment passageway <laughs> oh to gosh. raise that money. <laughs> so basically, outside of his apartment, he's got this like little passageway. I think it was 15 meters in length. No way. And he ran up and down, up and down, up and down for hours and hours and hours and hours wow. to get to 90 kilometers um, to raise money. And so he was also live streaming some portions of it. So he was on Instagram at some point and on Facebook at some point and trying to get as much publicity and as much people involved as possible yeah. um, and kind of running up and down that passage <laughs> thousands and thousands of times to get to that 90k uh, and it really was an inspiring project and he raised a hundred thousand rand for those temporary wow. employees so I think he really really did an incredible job um, at the end his feet were completely banged up he was showing on the video all the, the blisters and oh, all the chaos gosh. that came with I have no idea what his neighbors thought <laughs> seeing go up and down up and down for hours and hours and hours um, but again, a really inspiring story and a really, really cool thing to do to show how much he cares for his employees. Absolutely amazing. And that's a significant amount of money that's going to do real good uh, in the community. And, and this is the thing for me is just when you when you actually look at the scale of some of those donations, which are coming from personal individuals, it's just so amazing that even in times like now where everyone is struggling, people can still dig into their pockets and put out some money for a really good cause, which is fantastic. The 15 meter loop, I don't think I would have been able to do that even just just going back and forth in, in terms of every lap you're doing must be a whole lot more effort than, you know, even just doing the normal comrades, which in itself is an insane accomplishment. I mean, that's just crazy for me. Yeah, you can't build up any momentum. You can't like get into a groove because you have to keep <laughs> stopping, decelerating, turning yep. around, accelerating again. Yep. Um, and so it took him the bigger part of a day. I think it took like a, a large amount of hours. I'm not sure exactly what yep. the final time was. But like you say, like be, not being able to get the momentum, not being able to get into a groove. Like uh, Chad, you'll know if you're running long distances sure. once you get into a groove and you know you got your pace and you've got your and you can kind of just forget about it and you yeah. just kind of go through the motions for a long period of time and that really helps but yeah. when you're having to change direction change <laughs> speed all the time it's Gosh. like you say it's it's physically and mentally taxing Definitely. to do that for 90 kilometers so a seriously impressive achievement absolutely yeah no doubt about that uh, what was the last thing that you found interesting this week barry yeah so i've really been enjoying being able to sit and read lots and lots of books which i've really been enjoying over this period and so i wanted to talk, chat about the one that i finished about two or three days ago okay. called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. So Michael Lewis, for those who don't know, wrote The Big Short, which became a big movie about the, the 2008 financial crash. And yeah. so he's one of my favorite authors. He really does write incredible stuff. And The Undoing Project is kind of his most recent book. It's a little bit old now. It's probably two or three years old now, but I only got to it now. And it's about two psychologists, one by the name of Daniel Kahneman and one by the name of Amos Tversky. And these two psychologists are both Israelis who made a huge impact in economics, so outside of the field of psychology, by basically showing how humans aren't rational, right? <laughs> so if you, if you look at economics from most of economic history, a lot of the models and a lot of the theories are on the assumption that a human being is rational. So when he's given a choice between two like things of utility or two prices or whatever the story is, they're going to make the rational choice. Right. And that's kind of what all economic models are based off because we kind of think we're quite smart. We think we, are, we know be doing we, we think we can be able to judge things quite accurately and therefore we are able to make rational like thoughts and rational decisions and that's what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom who aren't able to think rationally right. because they have these instincts and these biases and kind of these urges they have to go to because they don't have that rationality in their brains sure Obviously, I think all of us who live in the real world know that we aren't rational that often, to be honest. There's a lot of emotion that comes into our decision making. There's a lot of times where we misjudge things and we kind of we are prone to bias that we don't even or aren't even aware of. Yeah. And so we kind of all knew this on the side. But what these two guys did was they they ran a set of experiments and kind of wrote up their studies that kind of proved this. And they proved a whole number of cognitive biases that get in the way of clear thinking. And so they really did change the way we think about the human brain. And what was so cool about it was these are guys writing in psychology who won a Nobel Prize for economics. Right. So it's an incredible feat, really. And they really changed the whole nature of economics by showing us this. And so it's a really fascinating kind of biography about them and talking about how they came up with these various ideas and 
Chad, after you finish reading this, you start to doubt your own brain because you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm exactly like this. I have these same thoughts. I have these same prejudgments. Yeah. I have these same mistakes that I make in my thinking. And so it's an interesting kind of look behind the curtain as to, cool, I think that I know what I'm doing, but you realize there's a lot of things going on in your brain that you actually are not in control of. Yeah. And uh, that's really fascinating. But beyond the actual content, what I find most interesting was that these guys were a true partnership and a true collaboration. So it's very rare these days to have two people who kind of operate in the same area, who are doing the same work and aren't trying to beat each other, aren't yeah. trying to compete, aren't trying to win credits, etc. So none of them cared about their credit. None of them cared about their status. I remember there, there would be journalists that asked them, cool, who came up with this idea? And they'd say, well, we don't know. We came up with it together. Right. There was never a moment <laughs> where the one guy was like, no, it was my idea. And then Amos kind of helped me and work on it. It's yeah. like, no, no, no. They were completely together as a partnership. And they spend most of their time together for 15 plus years. Wow. And when I say most of their time, I mean eight to nine hours a day in the same space. Wow. They joke about the fact that their wives were very jealous of them because <laughs> they never spend any time with their wives. They always spend their time working on their work together. And so it's, it's in a partnership and a collaboration that wouldn't have worked if they didn't work as closely as they did. As you read the book, they talk about how their two personalities were very complementary. So the one guy was very kind of stubborn and pessimistic. The one guy was more of a dreamer and optimistic. And so they were able to bounce ideas off each other and really find that common ground that really made the difference in those pieces of work because they were different. And so that kind of partnership, I think it's very rare these days. I think a lot of us are very individualistic. A lot of us yep. are trying to win credit for ourselves. We want to be the people who make the idea. We want to be the one who wins the Nobel Prize, yep. etc. But this is a story about the fact that they didn't care about that. All they cared about was the work and they were searching for truth. And who came up with it? That doesn't matter. The idea matters. And that's why I found the book so, so cool. Absolutely awesome. There's so much to unpack there. Um, so just in terms of the idea and, you know, just their thinking, it sounds like you went through a bit of a journey there, Barry, where they maybe gave a couple of examples <laughs> and you, you were able to kind of do some thought experiments. That's always awesome when you do have these kind of, I'm not going to say controversial, but these kind of judgments and, and decisions that challenge the way that we, you know, deal with things on a day-to-day -day basis. And the fact that they've taken you through this journey and maybe even converted you to some extent, um, for me, is really cool. What were some of the thought experiments you had to go through or some of the examples that you found yourself thinking along to, you know, your judgment and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I, I think, I, I can't remember any of them in, like, detail because they the, some of the questions right. are very, very long. But one of the right. ideas that kind of stands out for me is how we often fear losing something more than we enjoy yep. gaining something. Right. Right. So, the, so they, run a, they run a bunch of experiments where they say, cool, there's a, there's a coin and you're going to flip it and it's heads or tails, right? And they say, if it's going to be heads, you're going to win $50. If it's going to be tails, you might lose $25, right? right? And <laughs> if you're flipping that coin, because you've got a 50-50 chance, you should flip that yeah. coin every single time, right? Because the, the expected yeah. value is going to be in your favor. Sure. And so everyone will be at that point, cool, I'll flip the coin. Then what they do is they say, cool, let's make those numbers bigger. Let's say that instead of losing $25, you're now losing $1,000 or $10,000 right. and right. you're gaining $25,000 or whatever the story is. Yeah. And all of a sudden, our intuitions start to change because we yeah. have that fear that, oh, that loss is getting quite big now. And so even though the rational decision is to still play because we are yeah. still going to come out on top if we flip enough times, we know that, that loss is going to be very big for us. And so he talks about how our anticipated regret plays a large part in how we make our decisions. And it kind of talks to how people are very risk averse, right? Yep. We're not willing to take a risk, even if it's calculated risk, even if there's a expected value that's going to be quite good for us. Yep. But if the loss <laughs> is something we can regret, we often stick to the status quo. And so he runs through a lot of these kind of betting examples, which have like real money attached to it. Yep. And you realize how your intuitions change just on the basis of a, an absolute number, even in a hypothetical thought experiment. And so right. I think it's what made their work so powerful is that these thought experiments were really, really good at telling you what your brain actually thinks and yeah. what your intuition actually tells you. Even if you intellectually, you know, okay, this is, if I did the calculation of the, of the probabilities, yep. then I come out on top. But your brain is like, abort, 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 <laughs> retreat, 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 right? And so by showing you what your brain is actually thinking, you then realize that you make these same sort of judgments, these same sort of errors in thinking in other ways that aren't necessarily as visible as, say, a bet between a heads and a tails on a coin. Yeah, that definitely sounds really interesting. And I can certainly see um, the value in this kind of book. Um, you know, I certainly would enjoy reading something like that, uh, where you actually then start to challenge your own decisions in those kinds of cases. 
cases. Um, and that one is one that makes absolute sense. As soon as we start thinking about bigger numbers, uh, numbers where the loss can have a profound impact, we stop thinking about the gains. And I like the fact that you relate it to other elements in our life where you know, we could run a calculation and we could figure out what an expected value could be. Um, but because of the risk and because, you know, risk for some reason um, has a much higher proportion of our decision making, we sort of go that way, which is interesting. In terms of the second part of, you know, your introduction, which was the partnership piece, that is also fascinating. And for me, there is certainly something that comes together when two people work together on something. I don't know if it's the fact that, you know, two people motivate each other to do more or it's just the idea of, there being two sets of ideas, really, where something special happens. If we even look at the podcast, Barry, as an example, um, you know, you and I could certainly do this by ourselves, but I think there's something that comes together when, when two people work together on something, um, which is really interesting that they force themselves to be together for more than 15 years. D- did they live together? Did they live next door to each other? What was the arrangement there? So they didn't live together, but for large portions of time, they were working at the same university. Right. So they'd get to university in the morning and they would sit and work. So they're both academic professors, but they weren't the kind that liked to teach. They wanted to research, right? right. So a lot of their time, because they were so well known, universities would do anything to get them and just let them do their thing. Like just put them in a room and let them do their thing and they'll d- deliver amazing research. And I think what made their partnership so special was because we talk about the bias, we talk about the errors in our judgment. Often it's easier for us to spot errors in somebody else's thoughts or someone else's judgments, right? Because we have some sort of objectivity from those thoughts rather than our own. And so what they were able to do was that by talking to each other, by bouncing ideas of each other, they can spot errors in each other's thinking and in each other's work. And that makes the work that much stronger. And fortunately for us, we we are very attached to our own ideas. We are very attached to what we think, right? And so we often, we are blinded by some of that and we often make mistakes we don't realize if we have a friend who is caring and wants the best for us they're able to point out those mistakes and say listen maybe you should think about this in a different way or maybe you should rephrase that or maybe you should like rethink that kind of idea and that's what they were able to do for each other and that's why their work was so like cogent and so incredibly like stock was because it wasn't one person trying to say this is my idea and this is how the world works it was two people observing the world running thousands of experiments and trying to figure out it doesn't matter how we think the world works what does the evidence say what does the data say if we give these people these thought experiments what are their intuitions and it's not about what I think their intuitions should be it's what are their actual intuitions and by having someone to be accountable to you aren't able to run into those rabbit holes where you're like oh I think this is the theory we're going to go for therefore I'm going to fit all of this evidence into my theory. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Absolutely. And I think as soon as you strip away that element of credit, uh, certainly in terms of personal credit, then those conversations can become more meaningful and, and people can become a lot less keen to sort of hold on to their ego piece of it, which which obviously makes that partnership a lot more powerful and, and certainly sounds like one that is to be reckoned with. So that book is called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, uh, just if you didn't catch it at the beginning. It sounds fascinating. And yeah, I'll certainly have to go and catch it out one of these days. Let's move on to our next segment. Looking ahead. In looking ahead this week, we are talking about the behemoth that is Facebook, that <laughs> company that is a villain and a superhero all in one, yeah. um, obviously one of the most influential companies of the last kind of 10, 20 years. And uh, as Facebook has matured, we've started to talk about some of the impacts it's had on politics, the impact it's had on how we think, uh, the impact that the ad-based model has had on the internet as a whole. And so whether you like or hate Mark Zuckerberg and his company, they truly do have a huge impact around the world. And so one of the things that they are trying to figure out is how do they make sure the impact is good? How do they kind of reduce some of the risks in their program? How do they make sure that they're doing what's good for society and kind of what's going to keep them alive as a business going forward? And so, Chad, I saw the story that is kind of scary, um, but kind of interesting as well. Facebook has been filling its site with invisible bots, right, that act as users do. Interesting. Right. So what they're doing is they're using machine learning and using some sort of AI to create basically invisible people or or fake people to play into these social network environments and let them do a bunch of actions and then try and test and analyze what is happening with those people. So in traditional software testing, when you're looking at systems, you're trying to you're trying to look at cool. Does this code work in this kind of environment? Or if this person clicks this button, does what happen needs to happen? And that's kind of the testing that most companies do. This is very different. This is trying to simulate user behavior, and so trying to not think about the code, not think about how the program runs or any of that stuff, but looking at 
what do bad actors, what do um, people who are trying to do bad on this program, what are they able to do in this platform? So these bots, for some, some examples they try and simulate, they try and simulate bad actors, they try and simulate people who are putting up bad content, so pornography or violence or that kind of stuff. They're trying to look for weaknesses and privacy. They're trying to identify bots that might be scraping data, etc. And by like kind of simulating those people, letting them loose into the environment, they're then not trying to analyze what happens and trying to see if they can change Facebook for the better. Now, obviously, this sounds very sci-fi and it sounds a bit <laughs> dangerous for most of us. What do you think, Chad? Yeah, it sounds weird. Um, you know, like you said, in terms of these kinds of testing environments, they normally get rolled up onto a copy of the live version and, and are done in isolation. But the fact that they're throwing them into their live platform that you or I could come across a bot um, that Facebook has created. Facebook, which is supposed to try and minimize the amount of this type of content, is now actually posting this type of content, which for me is, is certainly interesting kind of experiment and uh, yeah interesting to hear about it yeah I think what Facebook will tell you Chad is that you're not going to come across one of these bots right, right. so they, they, they kind of quote that they use which sounds like the first quote in a horror movie <laughs> says goes like this it says bots must be suitably isolated from real users to ensure that the simulation although executed on real <laughs> platform code does not lead to unexpected interactions between bots and real users now if you're telling me that that's not the start of a sci-fi movie I don't know what you're thinking because that's exactly how sci-fi movies start and that's exactly how these things get out of control right so yeah. ideally you won't come across any of these bots in your normal facebook experience um, but it's hard to see how not because if you're trying to do real tests on yeah. a live platform how are you expecting that simulation to be realistic enough yeah. if you've got this huge like kind of resource of all these users that are doing amazing things on this platform it seems too good to be true to to imagine that these bots are not going to interact with real people i don't know yeah it definitely does sound like the the basis for like you say a, a proper sci-fi movie um and I, I mean i just wonder what what their plan is with this in terms of how long they're going to keep it going on you know what are the kinds of interactions that you could have with these bots potentially what they could have done is i don't know had these as sort of private profiles but i mean obviously these bots are going to be posting into groups um you know potentially encouraging this kind of behavior for anyone else who who does sort of come across them or, or find them um which you know does sound really interesting and I, I find it hard to see the positives here where you know they could have potentially knowingly tracked you know these bad actors who are real people who, who we know um are out there and, and you know facebook has all the information that they need on all these kinds of people and rather than you know sort of blocking this person um, straight away kind of maybe study them in, in terms of the, the real true human um, behavior uh, that was going to unfold anyway i mean i don't know what are your thoughts barry yeah so I, I think a little bit differently on that i think that we have to remember how difficult it is to track the billions and billions of users they have right, right. if it was easy to track these bad actors they'd be able to censor them they'd be able to take them out they'd be able to ignore their ads etc etc but i think this thing has become so big and so like unwieldy like it's a very very clumsy platform if you think about it like yeah. if you think about the facebook 10 years ago it was very sleek it was very well understood as to what it was for if I go into my Facebook now, there's so many features yeah. and so many things on there. The whole thing has become quite clumsy. And so I think one of the good things about this is it enables them to do real tests based on real research as to what happens when a bad actor is putting fake news onto the platform or what happens when they're trying to manipulate, etc. Yeah. I think that they are able to then test and get real research to say, cool, this then shifts morale or shifts the mood or shifts the political leaning or whatever the story is. Right. And hopefully that influences then the way they run their platform. So that's kind of the positive that I see. I think it's a very interesting way of trying to figure out what is the reality. Because if you go to the news, the news will tell you all sorts of things. They'll tell you that Facebook is making everything um, more left-leaning and it's ignoring conservative news and it's pitting Trump against Hillary and it's pitting Republicans against Democrats and it's doing all these various things. And all of these news sites are very politicized, right? They all have a, an agenda. They have sure. a reason for writing those stories. Yeah. Facebook has to try and be objective. And so this is one way to be objective. They can, okay, cool. These are the various accusations from people that these is, this is how the platform is performing in these various realms. Can we test that one idea? Can we test that one manipulation and see what happens to the platform? And maybe that then forces them to realize, cool, this is the reality. This is kind of the objective data. Can we now change the platform to make up for that? So yeah. that's kind of how I see them thinking about it. Like you say, I think there is risk here um, because you are interacting on the live platform. But maybe this is the only way to get objective data that isn't politicized so that Facebook can hopefully go and change some of their things in their site that are leading to this behavior. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But like you say, for this to be authentic, I personally don't see how this is not going to come across any real users. Are the bots just going to interact with each other? Is that, is that the plan? In which case, how can you track the shift in moods in the wider network? So, you know, how would you do this with still being able to guarantee that you and I, Barry, don't come across one of these bots? That for me is just fascinating. Yeah, I think one of the ways they're going to look to do that is by kind of cloning real users, <laughs> if that makes sense. So taking, for example, mine and your behavior right. on Facebook chat and making it Barry bot and the chat bots and looking at how we've clicked in the past, what we've looked at in the past, how we've viewed news stories and that kind of stuff and how this impacted what we've shared on Facebook right. and then trying to let our bots interact, if that makes sense. Um, but right. that, that takes you into a whole different sci-fi movie, though. So it's a, it's a very it's a very difficult one to understand here. Um, of course, this is all shrouded in secrecy at the yeah. moment. Yeah. But I thought it was fascinating to bring up. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up, Barry. At least now we know we might be coming across some fake people. Uh, let's move on to our <laughs> next segment. Develop and grow. So we're at our sort of self-improvement bit of the weekly podcast. And today I wanted to chat a little bit about productivity apps and uh, I suppose just tracking, you know, your to-do lists and, and that kind of thing. I don't know about you, Barry, but I've certainly seen through the past years, all of these apps have become a whole lot of more complex. It's become very sort of bells and whistly. And to a point, you kind of get to the stage where, you know, half of your day is actually spent on how you break your to-do list up, you know, what colors you decide to make <laughs> things, how many subtasks does each task get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I came across one that was actually recommended by the YouTuber, Matt Devella, who Barry, I know you also watch as well. And he recommended this app, which is called To-Do. Now it's not spelt the way you would normally spell To-Do, it's spelt T-E-U-X, D-E-U-X. And essentially, it's an app that has a little bit of a subscription. It's quite a small amount in terms of what it provides. And like I said, it's a stripped back app that is, is quite refreshing, to be honest, in my experience. So it's literally just your daily to-dos that you, you sort of track on the days you want to do things. So you can kind of look at your week and, and see how your week's going to look. Um, but the thing here for me is as soon as you take something off, it remains on that day. So it doesn't kind of disappear into this vortex that I know a lot of to-do tracking apps... If if it's not current, it's just gone and you can kind of never see it again. Whereas this keeps the day. So if you wanted to look back on your week, which for me at the end of a week, I love to do. I love to kind of give myself permission to let go on a Sunday, you know, where you like you, Barry, just want to kind of sit and do nothing. You can at least look back and say, okay, cool. Well, these are the big ticket items that I ticked off. I deserve this. You know, this is actually my deserved time off, which which I like. Um, secondly, if you don't get onto something on one particular day, it just rolls it onto the next day. So there's no extra kind of admin required. I know if you're using the sort of Apple reminders and that kind of thing, it becomes red, etc., etc. This literally just shifts it. Um, so, you know, whatever you, you still need to do, just get shifted to the next day. And there's even this really cool little feature that if you tick something off, you can have a flying cat that goes across the screen, <laughs> um, which is surprisingly satisfying. <laughs> Yo, Chad, that sounds amazing, dude. My to-do app certainly doesn't have flying cats, so it certainly is lacking <laughs> something in, the, in that aspect. Um, I have a confession. I, I use one of those apps that has all the bells and whistles. I use right. a very, very complicated, feature-heavy app <laughs> called OmniFocus. Okay. And I have for a long time. And I understand that sentiment of sometimes you look at this thing and it's just too much. Yep. It's too much stuff going on. There's too many bubbles and circles and flags <laughs> and all that good stuff. And so something simple like this, I think, really makes a difference. And so I, I think I'm just going to check it out. I certainly have read about it before. Yep. What I'm worried about, Chad, is that I'm one of those people who changes their to-do app like <laughs> once a month, right? I'm one of those who changes it and yep. like, no, I hate this one. And I move to the next one and the next one and the next one. And so I think there's, there's something to be said about just picking one and sticking yeah, with it. Definitely. And the simpler, the better. So I think this sounds really cool. It's very, very simple, very, very kind of user-friendly. I like the idea of it not disappearing so you actually can see you've done yeah. something during the day. Um, so I like that idea. And I like the fact that there isn't like a red overdue feature. It just moves yep. to the next day. I think that's quite quite good because sometimes there's a lot of anxiety that comes Definitely. out of that red overdue pile, right? Yep. And often there's good reasons you didn't get to that thing. During your day, your, your day changes, priorities change, urgent things come up, and sometimes you don't get to it, because, not because you're lazy, but because the day just got away from yep. you. And so that makes a lot of sense for me. And so, Chad, you give me something to think about. I must go and check it out uh, because my task manager is certainly <laughs> a 
beast. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely do go check it out. I haven't got to the subscription phase yet, so I think there's about a week or two uh, trial that you can start. Um, so yeah, certainly do recommend that. But I think you're right there, Barry. I think we do need to find an app and stick to it. And it's really hard because you know you've got all of these sort of external third-party developers who who come up with some really cool stuff, and there's always going to be something new, which is really hard. But um, yeah, like you said, if we kind of just pick one and stick with it um, and kind of maximize the full benefits from it. I just like that this was simple and I've really struggled with some of those complicated ones in the past. Moving on to the next thing, which I threw under Develop and Grow because of the charity part of it, is I saw this past week as well uh, on my Facebook feed, a couple of my friends were sort of nominating people. No, I'm not talking about the egg challenge. Uh, if any of you live in South <laughs> Africa, no idea where that came from and why that's out, but <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we can move on swiftly from that. <laughs> it's such a stupid challenge. Stop doing it. Stop uh, doing it. If it's you, so stupid. If you don't know what we're talking about here, um, this is a challenge where South Africans are for some reason chugging down a raw egg followed up with some sugar and followed up with a shot. No idea where it came from. No idea why people are doing it in lockdown. But I agree with you, Barry. <laughs> so let's swiftly move on from that. <laughs> this nomination is actually one where people are nominating friends to place an order on Uber Eats from a grocery sort of store. As far as I can see, these are typically 300 rand or 15 pounds worth of value. And while the driver is busy delivering it to you, you message the driver straight away and say, actually, this is for you and your family, which for me in the South African context is absolutely fantastic. And I'm really chuffed to see this kind of initiative. Yeah, it's really awesome to see. I think we all are trying to find ways to do our bits and do our part and try and contribute to something. And these Uber Eats drivers are typically paid very, very little by yeah. Uber, right? So they're typically in a very difficult situation. And because restaurants are not delivering at all, there are lots and lots of these drivers who simply aren't earning enough for their families. Yep. So this is a really great way to do something for your community. It really means a lot i mean I've, I've seen lots of them chad and seen lots of the responses from the drivers yeah. and they are so grateful for the, these kind of these kind of uh, gestures and so i think it's something great if, you, if you're feeling helpless if you're feeling like you don't know how to help this is a small way you can do your part and really help someone and his family provide for each other during yeah. this lockdown absolutely I, I just think it's so great so if you do feel keen to do that don't wait to get nominated um, you know just just do it and you know you don't have to share it either just for the kind of making a difference piece um, is certainly fantastic so yeah do definitely give that a go if you are inclined moving on to our next segment what's on your mind Right, so this is where we hear from our listeners, and uh, basically a week or two ago, I got a message, Barry, from someone that was affiliated with, you know, my mom and her boss, etc., etc., and um, basically saying that her nine-year-old is quite keen on YouTube, and uh, he basically came across our Memoji animations. Um, now, if you don't follow our Facebook page, uh, you probably wouldn't see, have seen it, um, but essentially what we've done is, because we've gone audio only for the last couple of weeks, um, where we normally do our sort of promo clip to post on social media for the episodes where we've basically been using our Memojis. Uh, now that is Apple's sort of animation where you can actually you know, design your avatar and, and animate it based on your own facial expressions, um, where we've used our Memojis place them into a virtual news studio and really just advertised our, our, our sessions. Um, I've really thought they've been quite entertaining, Barry. We, I think we've had way more fun making them than people probably <laughs> realize, right? We've had a lot of fun doing yeah. them and I think they give a little bit of a, a different aspect to our audio-only episodes. And so it's really cool. We heard from our youngest fan ever, Keegan, and he wants to know how you do them, Chad. Indeed, yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, uh, the disappointing thing that I had to relay across was that it's not easy. Um, so, you know, there's quite a few <laughs> steps involved and I actually listed out the steps. But yeah, if you haven't seen them, certainly do quickly go and check out our Facebook page, have a look and then listen to these steps. So first step is obviously that we record uh, using Apple's Memojis. So we'll just do it in the iMessenger app and, you know, kind of send them to each other. Then what I need to do is, is kind of chroma key out the black background. Um, so this is a, a process that I do in Adobe Premiere Pro um, where you literally just remove the black background as you would kind of a green screen um, in sort of normal movie effects and that kind of stuff. But now the, the tricky thing here is that as you remove the black background, you also remove black elements of the face. Uh, like the eyes, like the mouth, that kind of thing. So what you actually need to do then is is fill that in somehow. Um, and so what I normally do is um, add like a shape and uh, and kind of motion track 
around the nose. I normally use the nose as the best piece to, to track. So motion track the face and make sure that that, that, that shape uh, actually moves with the face. Uh, then obviously you kind of move that as a layer behind where you, you kind of don't see it. And uh, essentially, yeah, that, that's step three. Step four is to find a, a virtual news studio template in After Effects. Um, now obviously there's quite a few going around. I subscribe to the Envato platform, um, which really just lets creators access digital assets. And obviously that's the base for our promo clips. Um, then what we need to do is find bodies that look looked consistent with our faces, which I sent to Barry. I was like, Barry, which one do you want? <laughs> um, and, you know, I think he looked at the faces and he actually picked the picked the better looking guy. But, you know, nevertheless, we weren't using the faces. So um. <laughs> no comments, no comment. <laughs> um, and essentially what we then needed to do was fill in all of our LED screens that we had in our virtual studio uh, with some some footage. Um, so these are essentially related to all of the things that we discuss in our promo clips. Um, and so what I have to do is actually put that footage together into those virtual screens. Then it's a matter of sort of rendering out all of those angles and then editing together in your normal sort of video editing suite, which like I said, is, is Premiere Pro. So it's certainly not easy. Um, the first time it took me, I think a full day. Last time was, you know, two hours. <laughs> probably like you say, Barry, probably not worth all the time for, for you know, how people actually come across <laughs> them. But for us, it's just so cool. And I thoroughly enjoy watching them. It's the small things, Chad. It's the small things, especially in times like these, we have to enjoy those small, small little bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, and I think like for anyone listening, like YouTube is your friend for this, right? You can learn yeah. all of this stuff online and there's such amazing resources. If, they, if there's something you want to do in film, in audio, in any of this stuff, there are so many cool resources out there. And so I, I love these steps and they're a great place to start. And if you, you're uncertain about any of them in specific, I'm yep. sure there's a YouTube series out there for you. 100%. And I suppose that's that's kind of the, the age that we're living in, which is so amazing. I mean, I even learned how to play guitar using YouTube. You can sort of learn everything. We spoke the last few weeks ago about cutting hair. Um, I'm certainly due my, my next cut, so we'll, we'll get that video out again. But yeah, you're completely <laughs> right. There's some amazing information there that people are just sharing. So, you know, do go and access that amazing library that's out there for your taking. So that brings us to the end of yet another jam-packed episode. We've been getting better at sticking to our, our plan mark barry yeah slowly but surely chad as i was saying to a friend yesterday we, we're getting better every single week and we're trying to fix yep. up things things are a bit tighter things are a bit more refined we aren't repeating ourselves as much and yep. so we really are trying to do better every single week and we thank you again for everyone who's listening we really do appreciate your time and your your kind of patience with us as we try and get better at this we're 24 yep. episodes in we certainly are a hell of a lot better than we were on episode <laughs> one but still a long way to go chad Long way, long way to go. Long may it continue. And uh, yeah, hopefully we grow this into a massive thing one day to come. So thanks for tuning in, as Barry said. And this was episode 24 of Across the Pond. Pond, pond across the pond.